Hi, this is presenter Christodinopoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. As usual, uh, starting off the show, I would like to start by acknowledging that today we are broadcasting out from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And so I would like to pay our respects to their elders past and um, present to acknowledge their continued connection to this beautiful sky country in which we live and work under uh, and to which we look up and are inspired by, as well as the country in which we travel across and the waterways which keep us nourished. Um, So we'd like to acknowledge that uh, sovereignty was never ceded and uh, extend that respect to any Indigenous people who may be uh, tuning in for today's show of Indigenuity. So today we'll be speaking with Adam Duncan about this very gorgeous, beautiful children's book called The Bunyip and the Stars, illustrated by Paul Lalo. Adam Duncan is a Birupai man, a visual artist, cultural education consultant and preschool teacher at Wiradjuri Preschool at the University of Canberra. Adam developed The Bunyip and the Stars using First Nations oral storytelling traditions and the help of Wiradjuri Preschool kids. Adam, welcome to Indigenuity. Hi, Crystal. So um, I was wondering if you'd like to start off by sharing with us a bit of your journey, how you found yourself coming, becoming an educator to now a writer. Sure. So um, I moved to Canberra to come to uni. Um, <clears throat> not really being sure that I was headed in the early childhood education direction. But when I, when I did kind of fall into that job, um, I found it a really rich experience to... Uh, developed my connection to my culture, which I, I didn't really have as a young person. Um, unfortunately, I've always been proud of my Aboriginality, but didn't have a very direct connection to my cultural heritage. Um, I basically found uh, an outlet in uh, working with the young children um, through story, so really kind of drew that connection for the children to my cultural heritage um, via narrative and was able to sit down with them and work with them to develop this um, this story, The Bunny and the Stars. Mm. And uh, it just kind of it very naturally and, and wonderfully kind of fell into place when I formed a relationship with the National Museum. Oh, Beautiful. And so why did you find, like, why do you find that storytelling has been important for you? So you've, that's sort of been the way, I guess, that you've found yourself um, sharing this beautiful sky knowledge in uh, this book. What is it about, I guess, storytelling that drew you to it? Well, it was interesting in that I'd had a lot of conversations with um, uh, prominent members of the Canberra community around this very idea that um, there's, there's such a, such a rich history of story with with our peoples in Australia. Um, I unfortunately don't have any direct uh, connection to traditional stories, but what I do have a connection to is an understanding of the the history and the 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 practice of story craft and the way we use story to explore our our countries. and so it was a. It seemed like a natural um, 
and very and, and safe safe way to kind of explore a, a, a living connection to place, um, especially given that I don't live on the, the country that my my ancestors were custodians of. Hmm. And with this story in particular, so the Bunyip and the Stars, where has this emerged from? Um, it, it basically started with a, um, a pretty standard preschool curriculum um, in uh, science, technology, engineering and maths. We were doing a STEM program with the preschoolers and they were, they were particularly interested in, in asking questions about the stars um, and the ways in which we interact with them. We were in a situation where we had already had some kind of broader conversations about the fact that every culture in the world has a, a history of navigation by the stars, something we all have in common. Mm. And it kind of, the, start, the story started off as a very kind of dull, uh, <coughs> rudimentary narrative, sorry, um, following uh, Big Sister and Little Brother on their journey across across the country that they knew so well and and uh, navigating it via the stars, we realised that we needed a bit of a bit of tension, <laughs> and the children were really keen on, on introducing something like a dragon, um, which led led me down the path of kind of talking to the children about some of the some of the monsters that we uh, we have in First Nations storytelling, and we kind of landed on the bunyip. Mm. Um, Almost by accident, they, they were just taken by this idea of this mysterious creature that had so many different traits and could really look like anything we we could imagine. I mean, that that makes complete sense. I can understand why um, you know the childlike curiosity would bring a bunyip into the picture, um, and <laughs> I can see as well what you mean with having read your book. Um, that sort of flow from this focus on these two main characters, but then that added tension as they're going across their journey of this Bunyip character. Can you tell us uh, where did like uh, Little Brother and Big Sister come from, these characters? Did you always know it was going to be a focus on, a, the, I guess, the adventure of those two people, or did it come through developing the idea? Um, the the very initial premise was that they would exist as kind of every every child characters. This idea that we had um, uh, characters that were basically wholly identified through their relationship with each other um, was the, the goal was to kind of create characters that any child could relate to. Um, the interesting transition there was through conversations then with the museum and the development of the book uh, version of the story because it kind of exists in two different spaces. You know, it's a it's an oral story that's been developed over uh, a decade of working with young children. But then there's this written version that the museum's kind of had a hand in helping bring... Ah, very interesting. The, yeah, yeah, the uh, the children the children kind of then took on the names uh, Nareen and Wumbir, and uh, they they kind of became more more defined characters in that sense. They kind of stepped away from that um, the the more fluid and and relatable uh, every child to to kind of distinct characters, and I think they've come through quite well because. Uh, uh, Nareen particularly is a very strong little girl, mm. um, and I made a, had a conscious made a conscious effort, given that I have two daughters myself, to to kind of paint this picture of a 
a strong a strong girl uh, girl child character that could kind of take on the big ferocious bunyip <laughs> using her brain. I love that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, she's an incredible character. I, I, I'm in love with this book. And also, my goodness, the illustrations as well. Can you tell us a bit about, especially for our listeners, being able to tell us a bit about the illustrator and painting, I guess, like a, a, a visual image with your words on what sort of art style, I guess, you were going for in that? Yeah, sure. So, um, this was this uh, Paul Paul Lello's uh, illustrations came about um, again through our through our shared relationship with the National Museum of Australia. Um, the story has been included in the Tim and Gina Fairfax Discovery Centre, which is a play space for children aged zero to five, um, and the the story kind of influences one area of the play space. There's a bunny billabong for children to uh, dress up and role play in. Paul was involved in developing a short film um, that captured the essence of the story prior to the book being uh, developed, and it just seemed like a really sensible um, leap to to kind of use uh, Paul's uh, animation style mm. in the illustrations of the book, and so they really capture um, they really kind of capture the essence of his his kind of his work as an animator. It incorporates um, some really beautiful uh, um, physical media. The the bunyip itself, for example, is is, is clearly um, built up from fur. Um, he's used some really beautiful natural material in making up these images, and and kind of coloured it all using this quite amazing uh, pink purple twilight kind of. Uh, color palette, which just really blows me away. I, I, the main reason I like re- sitting down and reading my stories, you know, as exciting as it is to read your own book, it's all about the art for me. I think Paul's work has just really captured the essence of that twilight and nighttime uh, in Australia. Oh yeah, no, I, I I agree. I'm an absolute sky lover, and the illustrations really complement the book so well complement the narrative um they're so gorgeous and the way that you this because you know spoiler but there are there are stars there are skies with stars in them and it is just uh it is just so beautiful the way they are they feel like they actually like they look like they're like illuminating off the page you know they it's like you um i don't know it's it's, like it like elevates itself out of the book it's gorgeous yeah stunning (laughs) It is. I'm a big fan. Um, I can't wait to buy this for all the little ones in my life. And so one thing I found pretty interesting was the fact that Bunyip and the Stars is said to be the first in a series of books. Would you be able to give us some insight into what to expect for, I guess, this series? Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting because this is, um, this is in, in promoting the, the book since the launch, it's... Um, the, the series itself is actually written by a, a collective of authors. So, so I'm right. This, the Bunyip and the Stars is my contribution mm. to the collection. The series will then kind of take a journey across Australia and across different cultures um, in Australia. Um, there are some non-Indigenous authors writing stories about um, uh, Chris, Chris, the uh, Merino sheep, who uh, for a time held the world record for the heaviest fleece. Um, he he went missing from a farm in Australia and was found sometime later to have grown this enormous fleece. Um, 
and it's housed at the National Museum. There's mm-hmm. a story about Trim the Cat, who is uh, Matthew Flinders' ship cat, who went on the um, trip circumnavigating Australia. Then there's some um, uh, First Nations stories. There's one from uh, the Torres Strait, I believe. I think it's called Galam, which is about a uh, dugong. Hmm. And then a, a story written by a Wiradjuri woman um, about how the or, uh, how the kangaroo got its pouch. So it's a really lovely project to be involved in with the collective um, kind of contributions of me, of numerous authors. Um, that is to say that there's you know hopefully down the track there'll be some uh, some follow up stories that may or may not include big big sister and little brother. Yeah, I was going um, to. I was going to ask that if um, your experience of turning your oral narrative that you said you you know developed over some time into this uh, you know book that we can now all hold in our hands and love for forever, yeah. uh, has this inspired you to continue writing in this format? Absolutely, I, and I think I think the beauty of the project as it took shape this time is that it's it's something I'd really like to pursue as a continued practice in work as in insofar as. I worked with a team of people. Um, I think my strength is definitely uh, in the oral storytelling sphere. Mm. I think that, uh, you know, I've got a, a number of stories kind of rattling around in my brain that I'd really like to get in contact with some creatives and, and have worked together to kind of uh, tease out uh, the written form of these stories that we have been working on for the last 10 years. Well, it sounds very exciting, and I look forward to seeing whatever you produce in future. Uh, would you like to let our listeners know where they can find your book, The Bunyip and the Stars? Sure. Um, it's available in um, some bookshops. It's a bit, bit hit and miss going to a brick-and-mortar store, <laughs> but certainly available uh, on Booktopia um, and the National Museum of Australia website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for writing such a beautiful book. Um, And we wish you all of the best with your future sort of steps into this area. Thanks very much, Crystal. So we've just been chatting with Adam Duncan about his recent book, Bunyip and the Stars, um, which is actually the first book in a series of books coming out from the National Museum of Australia. So if you'd like to find it, it's available at all good bookstores. Um, So there's a little call out to bookstores to stock it, Um, as well as websites, as mentioned, Booktopia and the National Museum of Australia's website. So now, uh, as promised uh, at the start of the show, I wanted to chat a little bit about the skies. And so this is, let's just call it Crystal's Corner. And um, we are going to indulge ourselves with a little bit of a focus on the skies above. I wanted to um, really shine a spotlight on the moon because the moon is just so deadly and uh, it's so helpful for us. It can share so much knowledge to us. Um, It's an important feature or an important being for a number of different communities. And so, you know, it can help serve as a calendar for us of events. It helps us understand our environment in particular with being able to predict weather as well as um, tidal conditions in our waters. So the moon is just beautiful and I'm feeling a big excitement for it at the moment. Um, so let's let's just dive in. So I wanted to chat about the moon um, because as I've, as I've sort of uh, 
I guess, laid sort of the foundation for. It really is an important feature in our skies. And particularly in First Nations astronomy, it has a really significant role in many areas of understanding. Um, for us, uh, you know, it would mean, mean a lot of different things for different communities. Uh, I know in particular for my mob, Gomori, we think of the moon as a moon man. And there are a lot of traditions which go into the specifics about why that is. But I know there are other communities who actually have a moon woman because of its, uh, I guess, uh, somewhat obvious um, links or similarities to women's fertility and features like this. But for today, I sort of going to have a main focus on our moon man, Gomori moon man Baloo. And so for us, he has a number of important roles. Um, and so some of the ones I want to talk to you about are related to um, helping us predict things that cycles on the ground. So our moon man Baloo, one thing that he does is once in a while, he builds this a hut up in the sky. And you've probably seen this hut before. It's called a moon halo. And so this is an ethereal, uh, massive circle, you know, very cloudy, icy circle that encompasses the moon up in the skies. It's called a 22 degree halo. And so this is a scientific way of quantifying its size. So our skies aren't flat, um, much like I guess the earth is round and it's it spins around. It means that the skies that we look up to are also curved and spinning from our perspective. And so if we were to draw out the skies, we wouldn't be doing so on a flat bit of paper, but, you know, it's more helpful to accurately do it on a dome. Hence why we have things like planetariums. The sky is more like a dome that we're under. And so when it comes to measuring distances on a dome, we can't really do that with a flat ruler. And so that's why we use these things called degrees. And it's very much the same way in which you'd be used to hearing that 360 degrees exist within a circle. 180 degrees exists in the skies from one, you know, the west, <laughs> the western horizon to the eastern horizon. And within that 180 degrees, we can quantify how big certain objects are or how far apart they are. And so when it comes to a moon halo, this ethereal, icy, you know, cloudy, beautiful circle that wraps around the moon, it's really massive. 22 degrees is referring to its radius. So essentially it is 44 degrees across in the sky. And a way to estimate that for yourself is that we can actually use our hands and our arms to help us uh, measure distances in the sky, which is a very important navigation method. So being able to use your hands um, and being able to gauge how what I guess distance they relate to on the sky could help you be able to navigate very far distances across country. And so for a 44 degree object... It actually means that we're going to put up, if you were to raise your arm out straight with your fist raised towards the sky, the width of your fist in the sky is 10 degrees. And so when it comes to a moon halo, it's actually, four, if you were to essentially lie together four of your fists, you know, up, up into the sky, a four fist width in the sky, that is the size of a moon halo. And that's actually quite massive. So these are a beautiful feature. And so when we see moon halos, we know that this is our moon man, Baloo, and that he's actually building himself a hut because he's expecting things to get wet. He's expecting rain and he wants to keep dry. And so there's a lot more detail to the story or this oral tradition, which discusses this knowledge. It says that you would also pay careful attention to not just a moon halo forming in the sky, but to also the space between the moon and the moon halo. You would look to see how many stars you can see in the sky. Because when we see a moon halo in the sky, we know Baloo is preparing himself for wet weather. But how much wet weather and how soon? And so if you look between that space, looking at the stars, being able to see how many stars you can see in the sky would actually give you an understanding of how much rain to expect and how soon. 
If you could see three stars, it said that, you know, rain might be a couple of days away. If you can't see any stars, you know, it is a very heavy rain that is quite imminent. And so the reason for this is that moon halos actually form when ice crystals form in the atmosphere. And so ice crystals occur before wet weather events and they the shape of them essentially it interacts with the light coming back from the moon so all these ice crystals what they're doing is they're going to reflect light in certain directions they're going to refract it so as the light passes through the ice crystal it, you know sends it on a different sort of path much in the way that um the beautiful pink floyd album <laughs> cover of the prism <laughs> and the light shooting through the prism um divides it or separates it we have a similar type of um refraction through the moon's light coming through and causing this halo and so before these wet weather events, when we get these ice crystals, we get this moon halo, this hut that Baloo is building himself in the sky. And so this is a very handy uh, way of being able to predict weather events. Um, it's something that you can see regardless of light pollution impact. So I've seen them plenty of times in Melbourne. Um, but it's also a feature used by cultures around the world to be able to predict incoming negative, uh, wet weather, however you want to phrase it. But also um, Baloo shares the sky with other beings and in particular one of the focuses is actually our sun woman Yi. and so we have a story which talks about you know our sun woman seeing the moon man baloo and just being so enamored by how beautiful he is and so she decides to pursue him across the skies you know ever sort of hoping for his affections but unfortunately it's not reciprocated and so our moon man baloo starts to try and sort of get away from her by outrunning her across the skies but also um, trying to outrun her much in the way someone might try and outrun a crocodile. So he starts to zigzag across the skies, hoping to get away from the sun woman. And what's very interesting about a description like this, in knowing that when it comes to Indigenous astronomy or um, any First Nations um, astronomy practices, we use story as the vessel in which we put our science into. And that means that those stories, that scientific knowledge can be retold with different levels of um, complexity and understanding. We can make it sort of a simplified tale that gives across the sort of bare basics to young ones in our communities, or we can divulge into the uh, extensive just layers and layers of knowledge within these stories and complicate them as much as we need to, to be able to communicate complex topics to knowledgeable people in our communities. And so when it comes to this story, we are seeing this again. So, you know, beautiful, beautiful Baloo Moon Man escaping Sun Woman Yi across the sky. And he's zigzagging much like a crocodile and he's always evading her successfully. And in just these descriptors alone, we are actually starting to get descriptions of some really cool astrophysics or really cool astronomy observations. Because, yes, um, if to a very careful eye, someone who's watching the skies over an extended period of time, you would actually be able to notice that the moon is moving across the skies faster than the sun does. And also another feature, this description of this zigzagging. No, he's not zigzagging because Sun Woman Yi is actually a crocodile. But the reason this technique is actually described is because of the way these objects behave in the skies. So the sun has this beautiful path across the sky. If you were to track it as a line, that line it makes across the sky is something that we call the ecliptic. For many communities, it's the great ancestral path. And the reason it's so significant is not just because it's the path the sun takes across the sky, but because of the way our solar system is uh, structured, the earth orbits around the sun. So do all of our neighboring planets. So does our moon around the earth. And when we orbit in this way, we're all doing it generally in the same neighborhood. 
No one's doing anything crazy. No one's hopping over the sun's head. We're all generally just in that same sort of plane of existence. We're all sort of side by side going about on our own individual paths. But we're not perfectly all in the same plane. Sometimes there is a bit of variation. You know, we're all we're on we're all got our little sort of tilts, our little little angles to our orbits. And what this means is that all these objects in the sky that orbit around the sun, so all of our neighboring planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, sometimes even Saturn can be seen by the naked eye, as well as the moon which orbits around Earth. So we're still generally in that same plane. Sometimes we might be a bit above the sun's path and sometimes we might be a bit below it in the sky. So when you look for all these objects, when you look for the planets, when you look for the moon, we tend to all be around that same band in the sky, but sometimes can be below the sun's path, sometimes can be above it, the zigzagging nature. And so I love this sort of example as well because it's a story in which we can show you how we can encode scientific observations, some pretty careful observations, and encode it in a narrative that is easy to remember and can be uh, made as complex or as simplified as we want to. And what I love about this story is it has a sort of alternative ending. So, you know, once in a blue moon, it's literally not a blue moon, don't take that too seriously, but once once in a while, um, it says that actually the moon man Baloo, you know, he looks at the sun woman Yi in sort of a different light and he thinks he's absolutely gorgeous and decides to cover her in an embrace. And so this embrace or this act of this, the moon covering the sun is a descriptor for total solar eclipses. And I did speak about this sort of briefly about a month or two ago because we had that beautiful eclipse that occurred across a little portion of Australia. We had like 11% of totality in Melbourne, not a whole lot to you know enjoy. Um, but I was very lucky to actually go and experience the total solar eclipse in person off of Thalangi country in Ningaloo. Um, and it was just incredible. And the reason that I'm so excited about it is because we have a massive, a massive, massive, massive solar eclipse coming to Australia in just five years. And that might sound like a long amount of time, but what this story about the Sun Woman Yi and the Moon Man Baloo is illustrating about the occurrence of a total solar eclipse is also how long our stories have been around for and for how long they get passed along. Because solar eclipses are super rare. You know, most of us haven't had the chance to see one in our li- like in our lives yet. They can occur sometimes 400 years in between in any area. So they are super, super rare. And yet we hear about them in oral traditions because it is a piece of phenomena that either you've seen for yourself and described or you've learnt from someone else who has seen it or learnt from someone else who's learnt from someone else who has seen it. But I just want to take a second to just really hammer home how bloody cool eclipses are because they are absurd like the fact that they even exist on earth is absurd and i feel like a lot of people aren't aware of this and i just need to um just shove it in everyone's ears they are incredible right so when it comes to our moon for example because our moon's that important other half of an eclipse we need two two main features we have our beautiful sun and we also have our moon the moon that earth has is super rare it is not a normal thing to occur in the universe because of its size relative to earth it's actually quite a large moon so when it comes to other planets particularly terrestrial planets because that's sort of how we divide our solar system we have these full small small 
rocky planets, the first ones closest to the sun, which we call terrestrial planets. They're similar to Earth. And then we have the four ones that are out further into the solar system where it's nice and cold. And these are our gas giants. And they are humongous. And they have a massive, massive, very thick atmosphere that makes up what we usually see in those pictures of them. So they do have like a little rocky core. They essentially have an Earth at the heart of all these gas giants. But they are unique and different from us. And they are much more large and they have a much greater gravitational pull. So for small rocky planets, it is rare to have moons. Mercury doesn't have a moon. Venus doesn't have a moon. Mars claims to have two moons, but I call, you know, BS on that one because um, it's actually, it has two captured asteroids. So very small, very sort of lumpy, not really spherical objects. It's not normal to have a beautiful, large spherical moon in the way that Earth does. However, Jovian planets, those big gas giants, they have heaps of moons. They have like 89. Now Saturn has 102. They are huge. They can capture a lot of bodies. They had a lot of, you know, debris or however you want to call it, a lot of matter for moons to form from. The reason Earth has this weird situation that I'm really just focusing on right now is because early in our infancy, 4.5 billion years ago, the Earth is this hot little baby. It's molten rock. Everything's crazy. It is hellish volcanoes. It's just not a landscape that you'd expect life to thrive on. We actually had another early planet the size of Mars in our solar system called Thea. And poor, poor Thea unfortunately ended up on a collision path with Earth. And since we're much bigger, we had this big smash back in the early days of our formation. And Thea, unfortunately, was completely obliterated. And what happened in this uh, collision was that all of the top layer of the Earth was ripped up and thrown into space. So we had heaps of debris just orbiting around us. And slowly over time, it's pulled together. And as things do in the universe, becomes spherical, thanks, gravity, um, and became our moon. And so it's only because of this really unique uh, collision early on that we have had enough matter around us to form this beautiful planet of Earth, as well as this additional little body of the moon. And what's even crazier, in my opinion, is that the moon's distance from Earth is not a set thing. That moon is not staying in that same place forever. Actually, if we were to go back in time a billion years ago or a few billion years ago, the moon was much closer to the Earth. If we go a billion years into the future, that moon is going to be way further away from the Earth. And what this means is the fact that we have a moon that just so happens to be 400 times smaller than the sun in our sky, while also somehow being exactly 400 times closer than the sun, means that the moon and the sun are currently the same size in our sky. That is absurd. For, like, what are the chances of that 400 times further away the sun is, and yet the moon is 400 times smaller, but they happen to be at this perfect distance at this point in history where they are the same size, which is the only reason we get total solar eclipses. And that also means a time in the future we are never, ever going to have them again. The moon, the further away it gets, it's going to get smaller and it's not going to be able to cover the sun. So we are so lucky to be at this time in history where we get to look at the moon with the naked eye and get to experience what a solar eclipse looks like directly. And generations in future won't be able to claim that. And so this is just once again a reminder about a very exciting event on the 22nd of July in 2028, which in astronomy terms is very, very soon. We are going to have a massive monumental solar eclipse event right across Australia. In Melbourne, it'll be 80% totality. Brisbane will be 80% totality. Sydney, it's going to be 100%, but there's also a lot of 
massive more part of the country and heaps of rural towns and et cetera, which will have 100%. And this is an experience where when you can see the moon for yourself, it looks entirely different from the way solar eclipse images look like through solar filters, through any of the pictures you've probably seen on the internet. It is surreal. It is beautiful. It is an experience beyond words. And I'm encouraging everyone to get ready and to plan your holidays five year in advance so that you get a beautiful natural look at it. You know, things, it's crazy. Things go from hot to being completely cold and freezing. Uh, animals go quiet as they seem to think that it's gone nighttime. It is an experience beyond words. And the way the actual eclipse looks is surreal. And we are one of the only groups in the universe <laughs> probably, you know, in this specific point in time who happens to be lucky enough to be observing at the same time where the moon is at the right distance to get this beautiful phenomena. So we are currently in the phase of the show where I'm just yarning about um, sky knowledge and getting very excited about it all and hopefully bringing you along for the ride with me. And today we're focusing a lot on the moon because the moon is just, uh, I think, underappreciated. Like, sure, it's, you know, in our skies most night and, you know, there's a lot of focus on it in history, but somehow at the same time, it's just such an absurd, very cool, super confusing, super rare, you know, just perplexing um, object that I feel like, you know, we need to sort of explore that in detail. Because especially learning about the fact that it's it's not going to permanently be in the spot it's in. I feel like that's something that people aren't aware of. And it actually has a lot of consequences for some of the things that we get to see, like these beautiful total solar eclipses, which are seemingly quite specific to this moment in history. Right at the right time for me to be alive. So I'm very grateful for the moon for that. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about some other deadly knowledge relating to the moon and why it's such an important feature in our skies. So there is a strong emphasis on the way that the moon um, helps us understand our environment. And in particular, we can pay careful attention to the lunar phases. So the, 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 the phases that the moon goes through over the course of like approximately 28 days or so, um, because that actually helps. That actually has an influence on a lot of things on the planet. And so it's very helpful um, to be able to track these phases. And for many Indigenous communities, uh, tracking the phases and understanding the phases and communicating the fact that the moon does go through these phases has been incredibly important since time immemorial. Um, there is a Yolnu tradition about their moon man Galindi, which goes into uh, a, an interesting, colourful description of um, the moon and its phases. But I won't be spending time on that today because I want to talk about um, how the phases of the moon are actually quite important and very crucial to understand for communities who are living on coastal areas. So in particular for Torres Strait Islander communities, the phases of the moon have been informing them about when to conduct certain practices on their country, not just since time immemorial, but time present. These are, I know these are, um, these are, this is a calendar that they look to often nowadays to be able to understand, for example, when to best fish, because the moon has a great influence over our waters and um, the waters are where we keep many of the foods that are quite common and quite natural for people of the Torres, Torres Strait. And so I wanted to talk about the moon's gravitational influence. So the moon is a small body. It's much smaller than the sun. We orbit around the sun because it absolutely dominates the gravitational fight over the Earth. So we're very comfortable in a very stable place in our solar system. And as we go around, we've captured this beautiful moon um, as it has emerged from this epic blast, this epic collision back 4.5 billion years ago. So the moon is small, but its gravitational influence over our tides, over our waters, is super significant. And so it's very important to understand. And I think I can describe this much in the way that you can sort of think of a clock. 
So we're talking about not the digital clocks, but those beautiful analog clocks with, um, you know, all the numbers from one to 12 and these, you know, two, like an hour hand, a minute hand and a second hand. And so if you can imagine that in this middle of this clock, we've placed the earth. And at 12 o'clock, at the very top, we're going to place the sun. And so as we orbit around the sun, in this situation, we're just staying there. The sun's always relatively at 12 o'clock for us. And the earth is always, you know, just smack bang in that middle of the clock. The moon, however, acts much in the way that the hour hand does. So let's put the moon at the very end of the hour hand. And it's going to continually, uh, you know, go on a little journey, uh, zooming around the earth as it goes from one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, etc. And so if we think about the sun always being at 12 o'clock, what that means is if the moon is at 12 o'clock too, the moon's going to look completely dark to us. The sun's going to be shining on it on the other side. And so when the moon's at 12 and the sun's at 12, it is actually the new moon. It's dark in our skies. If we were to jump the moon all the way down to the bottom of the clock at 6 p.m. or 6 o'clock, yeah. This means that all of the sun's light is shining on the moon. And so this is actually when we get the full moon. Essentially, we need the moon to be the opposite of the sun in our, in our space. They're on the other side of the earth. But what happens when the moon is at nine and three o'clock? So when it's no longer above us where the sun is or not below us opposite where the sun is, but actually when it's on this 90 degree angle away from the sun, it means that the gravitational pull from the moon is pulling us sideways and the gravitational pull from the sun is pulling us upwards. And so what this means for our tides is that when they pull, this is sort of where they balance out. Instead of pulling together, they're sort of pulling in opposites. And this is where we get these very calm waters. And in particular in the Torres Strait, this is a very important time of the year, whenever they're, or time of the month, whenever there are the first quarter moon and whenever we have that last third quarter moon. This is actually time of the, um, the month where we have very calm waters and it is a perfect time for them to go fishing. And this is a practice that we see into today, um, which is just absolutely phenomenal. But sometimes you actually have a stronger advantage for it to be when the moon and the sun are both at 12 o'clock or when the moon's at six, when they're pulling in that same sort of uh, same direction. So when we get our high tides, things are a little bit crazy, but those churning beautiful waters sometimes are actually the perfect time of the month for Torres Strait Islander fishers to be looking for other types of prey, which can get disturbed or sort of churned up in that um, churning water, for example, like different types of shellfish. So I think this is very handy. Our, our moon is very deadly. It has, it's, it's very unique, um, not just in our solar system, but, you know, in the universe. It gives us these beautiful total solar eclipses over time and can also help us understand our environment better by helping us predict wet weather events, as said before, and also helping us to understand the movement of our waters. So this has been me shining a spotlight on the beautiful moon. Um, I think we'll be going over random astronomy topics uh, in future across um, a lot of our future weeks. Uh, I love this topic and I feel like it's been a while since I've really just yarned your ears off on in, in on indigenuity. So on that note, this is actually the end of our show for this week. So we've been chatting with Adam Duncan, who is a Birupai author and educator. He has a wonderful book out called The Bunyip and the Stars, which is uh, showcasing uh, very strong female characters, a beautiful relationship between a big sister and her little brother, as well as showcasing just the gorgeousness of sky country and sky knowledge. Um, so if you'd like to look, um, find out more, I would encourage you to look up The Bunyip and the Stars on all good <laughs> bookstores, book books, store websites, etc. Uh, and on that note, we're going to sign off for the week and we'll see you again next week with another show. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. 
Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.